Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 19 this morning. Thank all these musicians and thank you for joining as musicians as we've all enjoyed worshiping and praising the Lord together. It's, um, it honors the Lord. I think it pleases Him and it sure does good to our hearts to join Him in worship like this. Before I get to my message this morning, there was a notable event in the life of our church, um, in the life of the kingdom. Our dear brother, Dr. William Blaisdell, Bill Blaisdell to most of us, went to be home with the Lord this week. Um, he'd had a several-year battle with disease, and um, but he is a man whose impact across this world, in our nation, and certainly in our church, has been impactful and important. Um, an esteemed doctor, physician, spent his life caring for people. I think his career ended as a surgeon at Mayo Clinic. Um, and then after retired all these years here at King's, where he and Ann have poured their life into advancing the kingdom of God into every part of their being, and champions for that, servants in that, with a humility and, a, and just a way about them that is just wonderful. And uh, we rejoice. He's home in heaven today. His suffering has ended. We rejoice that Ann was with him all the way through it, all right to the end at the VA clinic and um, in those last hours. And we rejoice with the testimony of his life that will linger with us and the challenge to be faithful to the call of God because of this man. And I just want us to pause this morning and give thanks for his life and pray for comfort for Ann and his family and that the Lord we continue to bless and use them in these days. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that you and your great providence and grace and mercy came and found your dear servant, Bill. You made him yours, and you used the many gifts and abilities and intellect and skills that you put in him in such a marvelous way, ways that we could not count, only you will know. We thank you, though, that though he was a sinner like we all are, you saved him, and we could see your marks all over his life as he lived among us. So, Lord, we look forward to that day when we'll be together again with him, and we trust that you keep your promise to never leave us or forsake us, to walk with us and to particularly walk with dear Anne. She serves you and loves you and continues to stand for you in her life. Thank you for how he blessed and touched our church, for many others like him in this congregation who have gone before and are still going forward now. Bless us as we decide to serve you and stand for your truth. We are saved by your grace. We are built on the word, and we want to continue always to stand for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you have been wondering, when are we going to finally get to Genesis 19? We've spent two weeks looking at prolonged way of the conversation that the Lord has with Abraham about what he's getting ready to do in Genesis 19. And I'm sure some of you are anxious to actually get to that place. And yet, this is a miserable story to tell. It is uh, comparable to a similar story, a parallel story that's found in Judges 17. I believe it's Judges 17, my memory's right. A very wicked story, and yet God in his wisdom and knowing our needs gave us both of those stories. Um, the story of the destruction of Sodom is a warning of the inevitable judgment of God on sin, and it is a plea to accept his mercy. Because judgment is coming for everyone. Sodom and her sister cities were located on what was the Dead Sea's southern shore, we think. 
The Dead Sea Valley is the lowest spot on the Earth's surface. It lies along a great uh, rift that goes all the way from Kenya up through Egypt, uh, on up into Turkey. Um, it is the lowest spot on the Earth's surface, 1,268 feet below sea level, above, below sea level. The Jordan River feeds constantly into the Dead Sea, but there's no outlet, so there's a constant accumulation of mineral salts. Some of you have been to the Dead Sea. I've seen pictures. You try to get in that water, and you can't sink to save your life. Uh, you just float. And by common observation, there's hardly anything living there at all. In some places, the Dead Sea today is about 1,300 feet deep. But in the part where we think Sodom and these associated cities were at, it's only 20 feet in depth now. Remains have not been found that could distinctly identify this or these other cities. But what has been discovered archaeologically is an area, a very vast irrigation system that was around the whole area in the time 4,000 years ago. That would line up with what we learned back in Genesis 13, verse 10. You remember when we were there? The valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was a place that was rich agriculturally. It was beautiful. It was lush. It was fruitful. It reminded ancient men of the garden of God itself. Uh, it probably produced great wealth that could be traded as it lied along, laid across the great trade routes of the earth. Now today it looks like death. A valley of the shadow of death. So what happened to Sodom? Genesis 19 tells us the story. I would make the case that it's a story that has, in one permutation or another, been retold and reprocessed throughout history. In very early ancient history, God made a careful record of what happened to this community. And he meant it, as we saw in his conversation with Abraham, for it to be a reminder to generation after generation after generation of the people of God that there is a limit to what extravagant luxury and reckless expenditure on pleasure and shameless vice that flaunts itself today across our screens and streets and communities and eventually ends up in deep perversions and rebellion against the Creator. It always tends to emerge and it always ultimately brings judgment. From India to China to Babylon to the empires of Europe, and it's certainly being played out in the West now in North America. It's a story that's not new, it is old, it's been repeated over and over again. As God made clear in his conversation with Abraham, the judge of all the earth does what is right. And there are limits beyond which he will now allow cultures and civilizations to go. One day, all these judgments of God in history, beyond that which will lie beyond history, will become very clear. Ezekiel 14.23 says, When you see their ways and their deeds, and one day will all be exposed and all be seen, then you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. Well, this morning, because there is a great deal in this chapter, it does pertain to where we live today. I simply want to try to tell the story and make a few points about it. I'm going to break it into a series of acts. So let's start with Act 1. We'll call it the Angel Act. Verse 1, chapter 19 of Genesis. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of the Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. We discover at this point that it would seem Lot has become a prominent man 
in the city of Sodom. The gates of the city were sort of like the city hall. It's where the prominent people of the city gathered and discussed the business of the city. Remember that famous 31st proverb that talks about a, a wife, a noble wife, and how she blesses her husband, and he is found in the gates of the city. Well, these two angels arrive there. Lot is there, and and verse 2, and he says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. You see Lot practicing the same kind of hospitality. We saw so clearly in Abraham throughout his life. It is just typical of them. He offers these men a bed and before the night's over, a meal. Surprisingly, they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But Lot knows something that he believes these men, and as far as he knows, they're just men, do not. He knows what happens to visitors, to foreigners who stumble into that city. Because of that, verse 3, he pressed them strongly. He manhandled them. He, he did some arm twisting, major arm and twisting, and said, till they said, yes, we'll stay at your house if you insist. Lot knew what happened to defenseless strangers in the city of Sodom at night. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Unleavened bread was bread you could cook in a hurry. It didn't take much preparation. Um, at this point, Lot looks like a rather noble guy. He is doing the right things. And I will tell you, I think throughout the whole chapter of Genesis 19, in many ways it seems that Lot is doing the very best he knows to do. However, we have to recognize that long before this time, Lot had made a series of choices, one after another, that moved him and moved his family in all the wrong directions. And a lot of those poor decisions, a lot of that drifting from the Lord and his walk with him, is going to start to pay off in a bad way for Lot. You remember, we noticed it starting particularly in Genesis 13.10. We noticed that when there's this dispute between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's and that Abraham magnanimously says, choose where you want to live. Lot looks out towards this particular valley. He looks longingly, lustfully towards it. In verse 11, Lot chose for himself this place. And then verse 12, Lot moved his tent to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. And we're told at that point, the very next verse, what I think Lot also knew he still made the choice, though. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Later, because he was part of Sodom, not just near it, as he originally was, he had moved into it. When those nine kings from Babylon attacked, you remember in chapter 14, he and other citizens, including the king of Sodom, were captured and then were rescued by Abraham and brought back to safety. That would have been a good time for Lot, who had lived in the city, who now really knew, who couldn't say, I didn't know, I didn't know. He, he, he now knew. He could have easily made a choice there and said, we're going to relocate. There's someplace better than this for me to raise a family and try to do God's work. But he does not do that. Rather than starting fresh, he becomes more entrenched in the city. You have to figure that Lot kind of liked this life. You might call it living in the fast lane. I'm sure living in this city brought all kinds of conveniences and, and cultural opportunities. You know, ballet for the girls and sports and I don't know. I, uh, I know living in the ancient times in a city certainly brought a measure of safety, protection that you didn't get if you were living out in the open like, like Abraham did. 
Sodom seemed to solve so many problems. And he could probably name the advantages for his family living there. The sad story is that Lot left his Lot left a wife with her heart left in Sodom. He left the morality of Sodom in his daughters. And in the end, the whole of his life becomes disaster. Now, I want to tell you, God don't call his people to live in very wicked places. Some of you, he has been called to, to go to a place where it's, it's very difficult to live for God. In fact, to some degree, whether we like it or not, we live in a culture that's more and more like that in itself. But he will call. I know we have missionaries across the world and who, who deliberately, strategically for the kingdom moved to hard places so they could share the gospel. There are people in the Bible who lived in the midst of evil, corrupt empires. And their impact was great because they lived for the kingdom of God. I think of Joseph and I think of Daniel. But Lot, as we will see, is no Daniel. And he is no Joseph. And when the moment of crisis comes, well, I believe he does his best. All he ends up doing is endangering his daughters, enraging the community, and then they end up having to be rescued by the very people he thought he could protect. The good life mattered more to him than the kingdom of God. Now, here's the truth about Lot, and it's, it's, it's confusing a little bit. Because if we didn't know better, I would just say, well, Lot's a really bad example. Don't follow him. Um, but Second Peter tells us conclusively that Lot is among the righteous. To put that in New Testament terms... Not that he was sinlessly perfectly by any means. He was far, far from that. But he did have a real faith in the living God. And three times we're told that in Second Peter. But he was a believer who had drifted. He likely married a sodomite woman. He allowed his girls to be engaged to sodomite men. His life ends in a drunken stupor filled with the deepest kinds of shame. Lot was a real person. He really lived. He's not a caricature. He's not a joke. But I tell you what I think he is like. He's like a whole lot of 21st century American Christians who like to dance around the flame of sin and we think we can do it and not get burned and there not be consequences. I promise you there are consequences. In the New Testament, there's a man named Demas. Paul mentions him in one of his letters right alongside Luke and other great heroes that were helping and joining Paul in the work. And then in perhaps Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy 4.10, you remember we studied not too long ago, Paul has to report about Demas, that he has deserted him, and he says about him, he has loved the present age. And always the questions about men like that, people like that, who, who once seemed to be zealous for God, and then they, they go a completely different way, you, you wonder, were they ever really saved? A.W. Tozer gives the best comment on Demas. He says, the last time we see Demas... He's walking in the wrong direction. You know, ultimately about anyone, I can't tell you what the real standard of their life is before the Lord, what their faith really is before God. I just know I don't want to end my life with people saying the last time we saw him, he was walking the wrong way. Could it be true of you? The Bible shudders over divine judgment. It is the unnatural work of God, but it is real, and we need to pay attention to it. Act 2, a cohesive city. This was a city unified, it would seem. Verse 4 says, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, that is Lot's house, where he has these two guests. Verse 5, And they called to Lot, Where are you the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may 
know them. Now, in the Bible, when something is stated and then sort of restated and restated again, it's sort of the Bible's way of, of underlining, putting it in bold, and putting it in all caps. Pay attention to this. And you see that the writer falls all over himself to make the point. He says, The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, the whole of the city are caught up in the wickedness about to happen here. You remember the prayer of Abraham that we looked at last week where Abraham says, well, if there's 50 righteous men, will you preserve the city? And God says, I'll preserve it for 50. How about 45? How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? What God is demonstrating for us, what the storyteller is revealing to us is that indeed there were not 10 righteous men in the city of Sodom. There was only one and he is barely righteous himself. Lot's home is now circled by this gibbering mob of lusting men of every wage, and they're howling for their perverted satisfaction. And what's going on is not a first-time occurrence. It's not like this is the first time it's happened. This is the normal way it happens when people like these men come to town. Lot knew it was likely to happen. This sort of homosexual practice had become dominant in the way of life of Sodom. It descended into the depths of sexual violence. It was not limited to Sodom. These very sins and perversions and activities were a part of the civilization of that old time, of that whole culture. This would be a part of the life of Canaan. Uh, it was dealt with all the way through the Old Testament. It is a continual form of wickedness throughout the Old Testament and indeed all of history. What we see happening in our midst today is nothing new. It's the same old thing dressed up again, once more trying to put forward some wonderful, glorious thing before us. People wanting to defend this wickedness have come to this passage, and they will tell you that everything I'm telling you about Genesis 19 is a total misunderstanding of this passage of Scripture. Now, we're going to deal with some of those issues, and I'll make my case that I'm not misunderstanding it, but quite honestly, I think any honest reader of any translation of the Bible will see clearly what's going on here. You don't need a Ph.D. or years in Hebrew study, but we will deal with some of those nonsensical, nonsensical ways of explaining it away, as well as trying to explain away all the strong, clear, crystal clear words of the New Testament about this subject. It is amazing what people will do when they want to justify what they want to justify. Today, I just want to point out that when reading this story, the word know in verse 5, it clearly means a kind of sexual knowledge. Yes, many times the word know in the Old Testament does not mean that, but the context always tells you how we're to understand a word. And many times, significantly here in Genesis, the word know does imply that. You know Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That does not mean that Adam and Eve went out on a date, had a Coke, had a nice conversation, and Eve got pregnant. That's not what happened. Now, obviously, Lot is aware of this danger. Everything leading up to this, um, starting with his insistence that these these men not stay in the city square makes it very clear. He knows what's likely to go on. He anticipates it. This deals with a great evil. It is probably an evil that some of you at least struggle temptation-wise in your heart. We made clear when we started this series uh, about this city that temptation is not sin. But this is a struggle. It may be something that some of you have been caught up in. 
But this last chapter is not just for people dealing with that particular sin. It is for all of us. God's mercy is offered. It is offered to Lot. And the mercy that he needed, the mercy that could have been received by the people of that city that they needed, is the same mercy all of us have needed. So let's be very clear as we talk about this now and next week. Let's, let's be absolutely crystal clear. We are not a bunch of people who know nothing about sin, who are living a different plan of righteousness than other people. That is not the case at all. The New Testament message is clear. The Bible is clear. All of us deserve hell. And except for the grace of God, we would all get the kind of judgment that ultimately Sodom is going to be a picture of. But I also say we have to be clear about this. All sin is not the same. It is not equal in its devastation. I've had people in our church when I've talked about this and they've accused me of bringing this up over and over and over again. I don't really think we do that. I don't think it's very frequent that we get to this subject at all. It's not one we enjoy, but... But it is one that has to be addressed. There, it's a it's real sense that all sin is the same and that there is no small sin against God because God is a holy God and all sin is against a great holy God. But there are sins that have different levels of devastation. That's just reality. We all know it. Jesus said, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Beloved, if you're living a life of constant worry, that is sin. You ought to deal with that. You ought to fight against that. It's sinful to worry. But I promise you there's a very different level of consequences between worrying and being a cold-blooded murderer. Remember, the greatest sin that ever happened in this world was the crucifix of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 19, 11, he said, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. There are different levels of sin. There are greater and lesser sins. And it's clear all the way throughout the story that God is pointing to what had happened to the heart of these people in Sodom. It wasn't just the sexual part of it. It involved many other things. We'll look at all that. But at the heart of it, at the highlight of it, it was this very thing that we're talking about. Again, Lot pleads in the next verse that we're about to read, do not act so wickedly. Back in chapter 13, verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. When when, When Abraham talked to the Lord, the Lord said to him about Sodom, Their sin is very grave. Now, I have to just tell you, some of you are probably going, I know why he's preaching this. He, that, well, that, he's, he's really planned this thing out. He has, he has carefully, I, I want to just promise you, that is not the case. I've been preaching to the story of Abraham. But when I opened my Google calendar and checked the holiday box, like some of you did, because you want to know where the holidays are, I discovered this past Tuesday these words that just popped up on my Google calendar that we're in the middle of a 30-day celebration. It says we're in the first day of the LGBTQ plus Pride Month. Let us rejoice. And while I'm talking about politics, let's just talk about politics. Our previous president, whether you loved him or didn't love him so much, didn't have a much better stand on this this issue than others. He was glad to accept the affirmation and, and rejoice with those who affirm this very sin. Now, I would have to say probably the previous president was far more militant in promoting this than he was. And the present president that we have now is taking it to levels that are enormously going to be consequential. If he has his way, if the leading members of Congress have their way, if they get the votes they want in the Senate, 
They will criminalize holding and even preaching sermons like this perhaps, but certainly holding the position that God has said that marriage is exclusively the union of a man and a woman. They will criminalize that attitude. And you have had to be pretty brain dead and out of touch to know that we are already marginalized almost totally if we take this centuries-old, millennial-old, human-experience-proven position about how God designed our lives. Alfred Moeller, the president of our Southern Seminary, said it well this week. He said, What we believe about sex has never been peripheral. It has always been a central aspect of our confession of Christ's lordship. God knit sexual design into the fabric of creation, and it is our glad acceptance of that created order where humanity will prosper. He said, unless we boast in God's design, we will be perennially on the defensive and unwilling to speak the truth. The truth is that regardless of what the culture says, homosexuality remains a sin. It signals a rejection of scriptural authority. It rejects God's design for sexual pairing. It dishonors the body, and it nullifies the procreative purpose of sexual design. And so then, the final word, not all he said, but at the end of it he says, Christians... Young, old, Christians, hold fast. Don't budge. We need to trust that scriptural teaching on sexuality is good and a source of human flourishing, that the Christian vision for sexuality furthers the common good. So have courage. Christ has overcome the world. The victory is his and the witness is ours. That's something to have real pride in. We must stand for the truth of God's word in this critical area. We must do it with grace. We must do it with wisdom. We, we're trying to speak sinners to, sinners to win them. But we must not give ground on this matter. I mentioned that Lot did the best that he could. Some people suggested this whole chapter you could divide in two points. Lot in Sodom and Sodom in Lot. And that's what we see as the story continues. Act 3, I'm calling it Courageous Calamity. Lot went out to the man, out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. There's a raging mob out here. He puts himself out there, shuts the door behind. There's real courage in that. You've got to admire that. Verse 8, behold, he says, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow has come to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot, and they drew near to break the door down. This mob of men, some of them ready to participate in homosexual gang rape, some of them just to enjoy the spectacle and get the, the fun out of the whole experience, doing what they've obviously done before, giving these strangers a good old Sodom welcome. Lot does the courageous thing. He faces this pack of jackals and he tries to placate them. And yet when he does it, it is so ghastly. It is so unbelievable that we can hardly imagine it. But I will guarantee you, in Lot's thinking, offering his daughters like this was a noble thing. He had fallen into the thinking of a pagan world. I'll send out my virgin daughters and you can satisfy your lust with them. Father's Day, I think, is two weeks from today. May I nominate worst father of the world? <laughs> Certainly the worst believing father in the world. It is Lot. 
I didn't have daughters, but I know if a father has any responsibility to his daughters, it is to protect them and their chastity until marriage. The failure to do so in the Old Testament was a death sentence. I also want to mention this. We won't get to it today, but the end of this chapter is about as horrible as you could finally find anywhere in the Bible. And his daughters are horrible. But when you read that story, don't forget this part of the story. Think of what Lot has done here. Now, even this horrible concession does not appease the howling crowd. Quite frankly, they are offended that Lot is offended. They expect what they do to be celebrated, to certainly be accepted, to be rejoiced in, perhaps. Of course, Paul, who deals with this subject rather extensively in Romans 1, talks about this whole subject, and at the end of that discussion, he describes what's happening here in Sodom, what was happening in Paul's day, and what's certainly happening in our day. Romans 1.32, about this whole matter he's been talking about, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Chapter 4, Act 4, Divine Defense. But the men, that is the men of the house, the actual angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping at the door. So the crowd is attacking Lot. An angel cracks the door open, grabs him, and when I read this, I hear, whoosh! I don't know, that's just me. Whoosh! Back into the house, and they slam the door. The word for blindness probably indicates a dazzled state. It may well have been the kind of thing that Saul experienced on the Damascus Road when Jesus met him, and for a time, he was blind. What is amazing about it is that even in their blindness, many of these men still continue to grope and to try to get in this house and to get to these men. Act 5, too little, too late. Verse 12, then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? That is, the angel said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law? Sons? Daughters? Anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against the people has come great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. These guys have been with Lot, known him, known his family for a long time. They're going to marry his daughters. They're very likely with Lot when they got captured and kidnapped and then Abraham, by the power of God and the wisdom of God, saved them and rescued them and then restored them without taking anything in return for it. These men who who must have been part of the crowd, at least watching what was going on around them that day, seeing other people in that crowd struck blind, these men who surely have seen something of a different lifestyle in Lot, and yet when they hear Lot giving this warning, it's just a joke. This is just, just funny stuff. Well, if you've ever talked to people about the gospel and about Christ, eventually the conversation probably gets around to final things. That there really is a lot at stake, not just this life and a life of purpose and a life of freedom and, and all the blessings that come in following Christ, but there is ultimately a judge we're going to stand before that, and, and there are consequences the Bible talks about that are terrifying, that indeed in other places are described. What happens is about to happen here in Sodom is described as a picture of an eternal destiny like that. Have you ever had those conversations, men and women whose hearts are cold and hard, 
Some will just laugh out loud at you. Some will look and smile knowingly, you poor ignoramus, and want to pat you on the head. So it goes. What a joke. Act 6, lingering Lot. This morning dawned the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters, swept away by the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and they set him outside the city. You may not realize it, but verse 16 is the key verse for you and I. It is without a doubt for all of us the connecting point. Because ultimately, Lot's story is our story. If you're here and you're saved and you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've really experienced His grace, it means God in some way has overcome the sinfulness, the hardness, the natural bent towards rebellion, to making yourself God that we all are born with. God has somehow come into your life, and He has forcefully, maybe vilely for some of our cases, and He has seized you. He has seized your old blind eyes and your hard heart, and He, by His conviction of His Holy Spirit, has shaken you awake, breathed life into you, and has made you aware of your desperate need to stop claiming anything but to fall at the foot of Jesus at the cross and receive His forgiveness and His grace. And it's only by that that you could have been saved. And like Lot, you too received merciful. The Lord was merciful to you. And the Lord brought you out of what would have been a path all the way to hell. Lot is being spoken to by the word of God through these angels. And yet not even, not even brimstone seems to make a pilgrim out of him. He's, he wants to linger. Paul would say when he told his story, and he could talk about all that he'd done for the Lord, when he summed up his story, he would say, I've obtained mercy. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It has nothing to do with me. And Lot has received that mercy, and yet even now, his heart has drifted so far away, he's still lingering. Verse 17, and as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, that that city there is is near enough to flee to, and it's just a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? Lot's whimpering speech is astounding. God had spared his life, and then he says, God, I just don't think you can do enough. You can't provide me enough to get all the way to the hills you told me to go to. So the Lord lets him go to Zor. The word Zor means just a little town. It's probably like a little village. At this point, I don't know about you, I'm reading this story, and I'm saying, all right, God, <laughs> fry him. Just be done with him. We're fed up with Lot. Take this whimpering, wheedling, whimpering weasel, make him dead. But God doesn't do that, just as he hasn't done it to me or you. He has great mercy and grace. Verse 21, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor, means little place. Now, I just we read verses 17 through 22 right here, and I want you to notice in those, those verses between 17 and 22, five times the word escape has been used. Escape, 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 escape. 
And Lot wants to dwaddle. I also have to mention one interesting thing. You remember Abraham's prayer? What if there's 50, 40, all the way down to 10? We'll talk more about that. But Lot does end up in the city of Zor, maybe the village of Zor, a little place. But not only does he get spared, Zor gets spared. One righteous man in that town saved the little town of Zor. Well, Acts 7 fire falls. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And so judgment falls on Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me, let me just remind you of something at this point. People, as a pastor, you get asked this all the time over the years. What is that one unforgivable sin? What's the unpardonable sin? What is that sin against the Holy Spirit? To which you always have to be reminded that the unpardonable sin is not some act you do. It's a state that you get in. It's where you become senseless, cold, hardened, utterly, utterly unaware of your state, of your need, of your fallenness. It's where you come to the point that you you cannot imagine that you have ever even sinned or that you need forgiveness. And so you have no, no need of forgiveness. The Holy Spirit cannot make you see your need for forgiveness. And so you never ask for it. And all that can come is judgment. I think that's where Sodom had come as a city. I think cultures much get to that same place. Now what actually happened, if we could go back in time and, and test it with all our scientific instrumentation... Maybe men who have tried to think about this thing, it's, it's right. Gal Sodom lays on that great rift valley. It's struck by a series of earthquakes. A quake opens, a fissure releasing gases that ignited. Sulfur and petroleum are set on fire. A catastrophic firestorm falls on their head. That may be exactly what happened. God uses means. When God acts, he uses means. But the point is, God did it. God did it. This was his work at his timing, at his word. One other question I know has to come up with, what about Lot's wife? Now, I, uh, this is, uh, it's funny, I had about 25 people down at Pioneer this morning, and I preached the same message, and, and I, I told that my memory of this, I remember seeing a movie as a kid, I think, and there was Lot and his wife and his kids, and they're running, and there's Sodom being burned up behind them, and as she's running, Lot's wife looks around, she's curiously sort of likes a glance, and poof, salt. And that's the way I thought that was. And I had a bunch of people at the other service tell me, yeah, I saw that same movie. So maybe some of y'all saw that same movie. I don't know. But I don't think that's how it was. From the text here, I don't think that's what happened. Lot and his daughters are in the little town of Zor before the fire falls. And I think the indication here is that what likely happened is that Lot's wife stopped on the way there. Her backward look was not a curious glance. It's that she didn't want to leave in the first place. And she is lingering behind. She may have even turned around and said, I'm going back to Sodom. Jesus uses this as an illustration. And based on what he says, that seemed to be exactly what the case was. He says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He says, on that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Don't go back. And get your goods in the house. He said, likewise, let the one who's in the field, don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. I think this woman was so owned by Sodom 
that she likely said to Lot at some point, you fool, I'm not going one more step, I'm going home. I'll see you in a couple days when you come to your senses. She would rather be dead than give up everything she knew and was comfortable with and all her possessions and all her comforts and all her loves and everything that was so dear to her, she could not let go of it. Anita Deneke wrote a poem, goes like this, like Lot's wife, I'm sometimes loath to turn my eyes from my possessions, even knowing fully that my true treasures are in heaven. Lord, there's a looking back on your leading that's pleasing. But there is another kind of past clinging that's soul and body petrifying. That was Lot's wife. Well, finally, we come to pointless prayer. Pointless prayer. Before I read this text, it's to finish the, the chapter. Many of you know the name E.M. Bounds. If you've been involved in prayer life, E.M. Bounds was a wonderful, godly Methodist pastor of uh, many of a century or more ago, and he uh, was particularly known for his work in prayer. He was just an effective prayer for other people, and he particularly prayed for the lost with great effect. Wrote a lot of books about prayer that are real blessing. But I believe there's one matter where he made a mistake, and I think it was on this this whole story about uh, Abraham and Lot here dealing with Sodom. You remember last week we, we came through all that prayer in chapter 18, but if you pay close attention, we never got to the last verse. We got to the end of, of, of the prayer, but we never got to the last verse. Now, E.M. Bounds looks at that story where Abraham boldly prayed, Lord, if there's 50, will you save the city? 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And then E.M. Bounds says, you know, why did he keep going? Why did he just go ahead and say, Lord, if there's one righteous person, will you save Sodom? With the implication that if only Abraham had prayed that way, maybe the whole city could have been saved. Well, I don't think he's right. In fact, I'm pretty sure he's not. Go back to, if you have your Bibles, look at the end of chapter 18. He's made that last request for 10, and then in verse 32, the Lord agreed, even for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And Ian Bounds says, why do you make one request? I'll tell you why do you make another request, because of verse 33. Then the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You remember how we talked about how the Lord started the prayer with Abraham, and the Lord finished the prayer. Business was over. So, we have a whole chapter. We talked all about that long prayer. On and on we went about it. Now the next day, Abraham comes out. He looks over the valley. And look what he sees. Verse 27, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. Remember the Persian Gulf War? Remember when Saddam Hussein blew up all the Kuwaiti oil fields? I think it looked probably something like that. And that's exactly what Abraham had been pleading with God not to do. Is there any way to avoid this? And now he walks out there, and there it is. So what's the point of prayer? Why did he bother? What good did it do? Verse 29. So it was, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. That doesn't mean he went, oh, Abraham, I hadn't thought of him a lot. That's not, he remembered what Abraham had prayed. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities that Lot had lived. Briefly, that means God responded to the prayer of Abraham and saved Lot. And the little town of Zor, 
was saved as well. Now I wonder, I know he couldn't have told by just looking off in the distance and seeing the smoke. He probably had to assume Lot and his whole family had been destroyed too. Did he ever find out that Lot was saved? I don't know. The truth is, God is not under any obligation to tell you how he's responding and working through your prayers. And he will often work in your prayers, and the way he will work things will be not how you had envisioned it. And God is not demanding on God that he give you a feedback loop so you can continue to pray. Sometimes we do know, sometimes we don't. But God always works when the prayer of faith is lifted. God is at work. As we finish this morning, there's so much more to say about this whole passage. But I want to finish because I want us to stay right in the center of what this passage is about and why it's so important. To do that, I just want to finish with Romans chapter 5. You know these verses. This story is our story. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly. So who are we? The ungodly. Your Christian friend, you may have been a Christian for 50, 60 years. Thank God for his work in you, for his work of sanctification. But at your heart, at your base, you were ungodly. Until that work is completely finished, there's still ungodliness in you. He died for us when we were ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. An eternal experience in the fire and brimstone of Sodom would be what every single one of us would receive, except for the mercy of a God who gave a son on a cross. And in his mercy, he called you to himself to believe, and you trusted him and followed him. There is never, no matter what's going on around us, we do not go out as a bunch of people, better, self-righteous against all those We are fellow ungodly people saved by the grace of God to take the glorious messages of God who gave his son, who took a cup, a cup of that very wrath, of that of that brimstone, and it's eternal God, fully man and yet eternal God. He drank all that judgment to himself so that you and I could be saved. And that's good news to share. And we will do almost anything to find a way to tell people everywhere, no matter where they're at or what they're into about this Savior who will save them out of that and everything else so they can have life eternal. And that's our calling. Today, your life may or may not come in a thousand miles of the kind of wickedness we've talked about this morning, but there's wickedness in your life. And apart from Jesus Christ, that's the route you're headed down. And I would plead with you today to open your heart to follow Jesus, to trust him, to give your life to him, to receive his mercy and his forgiveness. And I would plead with brothers and sisters in Christ all around us there are people in need of this mercy. Let us tell this story. Let us find a way to live for the kingdom. Let us walk away from the pleasures of this world and their allurement and live for the kingdom. Would you stand with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving this story for us. Thank you for the kindness given us these warnings. Lord, there are people in this room who may live very noble, people would say wonderful lives, and yet 
Their hearts are still far from you. They have never surrendered and bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus. They could not say today that you are their Lord and their King and their Master. I pray that they would come to you, that they would hear your claims upon, that they would know that your grace is for them. I pray for us who live in these times that we could be faithful, filled with love, but telling the truth without compromise, without shame, without embarrassment. We could stand where you stand. To those who call you a liar, we would confront them in the message and the truth of Jesus Christ in a way that is gracious and life-affirming where they can find Jesus. Father, help us to do that in these days. Help us to be on mission for you. Do your work in our hearts and our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.